Failure is impossible. It's a great rallying cry, but really? Is it impossible? Well, women in this country won the right to vote 100 years ago this year because a whole lot of people were willing to believe that failure was impossible. A whole lot of men and women who learned to be resilient in the face of failure and setbacks over and over and over again, and they never gave up. I'm going to talk to you today about a few of those women, about their decades of struggle and their amazing courage. I may tell you a bit about a difficult time in my life when I decided not to give up. And I want to remind you of a recent example of the amazing resilience of this beloved community. As this country celebrates the centennial of women's suffrage, we also celebrate the 200th anniversary of Susan B. Anthony's birth. Susan B. Anthony was born February 15, 1820. Anthony fought her entire life for the right for American women to vote, but she did not live to see the passage of the 19th Amendment, the Susan B. Anthony Amendment. Susan is the iconic hero of the women's suffrage fight in the United States, and she deserves all the accolades. She is the first woman to have her image on a U.S. coin. She's going to be on a statue in New York's Central Park. And she was the Google banner yesterday. <laughs> Anthony was a Quaker whose lifelong activism started with the campaign to abolish slavery. Her home in Rochester, New York, was a frequent meeting place for such prominent abolitionists as Frederick Douglass and William Garrison. In fact, Anthony and Douglass became good friends. As we know, social justice causes and interests often intersect, and many abolitionists were also active in the temperance movement. In 1853, Anthony, who was trained as a teacher and relished public speaking, rose to speak at a temperance meeting in Albany, only to be told that women were not allowed to speak. Ms. Anthony thereafter turned her prodigious intellect and energy to the struggle for women's rights, including the right to vote. Our Civil War ended slavery which required some adjusting to the original language of our Constitution. But the language of the 14th and 15th Amendments to the U.S. Constitution caused a rift between Susan B. Anthony and her friend Frederick Douglass. The word male was inserted in the 14th Amendment, and in the 15th Amendment, the suffragists were blocked in their efforts to have the word sex inserted along with race color, or previous condition of servitude. Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton then established the American Equal Rights Association in 1866, calling for the same rights to be granted to all, regardless of race or sex. In 1868, Stanton and Anthony also created and began producing the Revolution, 
a weekly publication that lobbied for women's rights. The newspaper's motto was, men, their rights, and nothing more, women, their rights, and nothing less. But Anthony did not, as some have suggested, abandon her anti-slavery pro-equality stance. In her words, it's not a question of precedence between women and black men. Neither has a claim to precedence upon an equal rights platform. <clears throat> but, <clears throat> excuse me, the business of this association is to demand for every man, black or white, and for every woman, black or white, that they shall be this instant enfranchised and admitted into the body politic with equal rights and privileges. Susan B. Anthony did not shy away from publicity. In fact, she sought it. And like some people in this very congregation, she believed getting arrested was a fine way to draw attention to the suffrage cause. Suffragists had been looking for a good court test case since passage of the 14th and 15th Amendments. And in 1872, Anthony planned to register to vote in Rochester, expecting to be refused and planning to file suit contesting the refusal. To her surprise, the young registrars were apparently caught off guard by this very self-assured and well-known citizen, and they allowed Anthony to register. She then quickly gathered a small group of women who all proceeded to register to vote. After these women actually cast votes on November 5, 1872, a bit of a Keystone Cops scenario took place. I'm going to read an excerpt from a wonderful book uh, by Susan Ware called Why They Marched. First, the local U.S. commissioner invited the women to come into his office for an interview. Clearly enjoying the moment, Anthony sent word to him that I had no social acquaintance with him and didn't wish to call on him. If he wanted to see me on official business, then he must come and see me. Two weeks later, a U.S. Marshal knocked on Anthony's door. He soon found himself sitting in the parlor making small talk with this formidable suffrage leader. Finally, the embarrassed emissary admitted he was there to serve a warrant for her arrest. After asking permission to change clothes, which was granted, and presenting her wrist to be handcuffed, which was declined, the marshal escorted Anthony and two of her sisters to the federal offices, and as was the custom, he paid their trolley fare. They were not arrested, however, and they did not spend time in jail. After two months of hearings, a grand jury indicted Anthony, but not any of the other women. Anthony went to trial in June 1873, a trial she called the greatest judicial outrage history ever recorded, perhaps because after the arguments were made, the judge instructed the jury to find her guilty. <laughs> he had written his opinion before the trial began. This judge whom Anthony described as a pale-faced, small-brained man, 
then made the mistake of asking, asking Anthony if she wished to speak before sentencing. Oh, she did. <laughs> and when the judge told her more than once to sit down, she persisted. Susan B. Anthony was fined $100, but she never paid the fine. We tend to cite the 1848 meeting in Seneca Falls as the beginning of the suffrage campaign in this country, but the issue of women's equality actually began at the beginning. In a letter dated March 31, 1776, Abigail Adams, who not incidentally was a Unitarian, wrote to her husband John, urging him and the other members of the Continental Congress not to forget about the women when fighting for America's independence from Great Britain. The future First Lady wrote, in part, I long to hear that you have declared an independency. And by the way, in the new code of laws, which I suppose it will be necessary for you to make, I desire you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of the husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. Her husband replied in part, as to your extraordinary code of laws, I cannot but laugh. He went on, depend on it. We know better than to repeal our masculine systems. And Abigail Adams may have decided on one revolution at a time. History is, of course, written, at least at first, by the winners. But our country's history is becoming more complete all the time. I went to school in the 50s and 60s in the Deep South, and I don't remember being taught much about women's suffrage. My memory, which may not be completely accurate, I'm glad I have a memory at all, <laughs> is, is that we spent so much time on the important battles of the Civil War, or we called it the War Between the States, that we rarely made it into the 20th century. I, I think there was a footnote. Women were granted the vote in 1920. We do know some about Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Alice Paul, Carrie Chapman Catt, perhaps Ida B. Wells. Every one of these women were heroes who made significant contributions to the cause of women's suffrage. Many of them, along with Anthony, devoted much of their adult lives to the fight. But behind and beside these women were legions of everyday women whose names we don't know, women who believed that women deserved full rights of citizenship and whose belief in that right led them to attempt and to accomplish feats beyond anything they had dreamed of and certainly beyond anything their mothers and grandmothers had dreamed. These women traveled the country alone sometimes on horseback. They gave speeches on street corners. They designed and printed and distributed thousands of leaflets in multiple languages. They marched and demonstrated. In fact, the suffragist 
were the first to hold large-scale public demonstrations for a political campaign. After all, they couldn't vote. They held months-long vigils at the White House, no matter the weather. They were arrested, jailed. They demonstrated again, and they were arrested again. And yes, sometimes they were kept in jail, beaten and tortured. They never gave up. They climbed mountains, literally, and planted flags declaring votes for women. The history of the suffrage fight, some of which is only now being written, is rich with stories of creativity and bravery. And not all the women in this country had to wait for the 19th Amendment in order to vote. In Utah, women got the vote when, it became, when Utah became a territory in 1870. I was fascinated reading that the women of the Mormon church were very active in the suffrage movement. Most of these women were in plural marriages, a practice they vigorously defended, although this made many of their East Coast sisters extremely uncomfortable. This eventually caused some serious splits in national suffrage organizations. When Utah became a state in 1890, it provided the first star on the suffrage flag. But in 18, that doesn't make sense. I've got my dates wrong. A few years later, <laughs> Congress passed the Edmonds-Tucker Act, which allowed the confiscation of church property in an attempt to end polygamy. The act also disenfranchised women in Utah. I loved learning about the cookbook published by the Washington Equal Suffrage Association in 1909, one of several cookbooks designed over the years spreading the message of good cooking and sure voting. These cookbooks may have celebrated women's traditional roles, but also suggested that they might be venturing beyond home and hearth. For example, the recipe for how to cook trout begins, first, catch your trout. And I'm awed by the brilliance and tenacity of so many black women, some of whom had been born into slavery, all of whom were the children of former slaves. I want to tell you a little bit about just one of them. Mary Church Terrell was a writer, an educator, and a civil rights activist. She was born in 1863. Both of her parents had been slaves. This child of former slaves graduated from Oberlin College with both undergraduate and graduate degrees. After graduation, she moved to Washington, D.C., where she founded the National Association of Colored Women, which became a formidable social and political influence in the nation's capital. Although she counted Susan B. Anthony a friend, her call to my sisters of the dominant race were not heeded. She argued, a white woman has only one handicap to overcome, that of sex. I have two, sex and race. In 1903, Terrell was a delegate to the International Council of Women in Berlin at a time when traveling to Europe involved much more than an uncomfortable flight. She had been invited to deliver an address on the American suffrage movement. When she heard some of the European delegates grumbling that the American women spoke only English, Mary Church Terrell decided to deliver her, mark, her remarks in German. 
Later that same conference, Terrell gave another well-received speech in French. Every day, people doing extraordinary things and never giving up. And because they did, I was able to run for an elected office in 1988. I had a very short speech. Hello, my name is Martha Haney. I'm a candidate for the Office of Controller, and I am a Florida certified public accountant. Being a CPA gave me the winning edge, instant credibility in my election, and it served me well during my 28 years in office. But I came very close to not being a CPA, in part because I didn't go straight into public accounting when I graduated. Most accounting majors do, but I thought Walt Disney World sounded like much more fun. <laughs> um, I wasn't under any particular pressure from my employer to take this arduous test. So I waited a year or so before I decided that I really should get certified. I registered to take the exam in November of 1974. And in August of that year, my mother died. She had just turned 56. Life was not going the way it was supposed to. I can't tell you how I spent the next several weeks, but I wasn't studying. I took the two-and-a-half-day test in Tampa 10 weeks after my mother died, and I bombed. My mind went blank. And I freaked out because failing tests was not something I was used to. So take it again. I tried studying a little, but I was still mostly in a fog. Over the next year, I took the exam three more times, passing two parts and then a third part, and then I bombed again after failing the fourth part, and I had to start all over again. Egg. I didn't need the certification for the job I had, and I wasn't particularly interested in public accounting, but dang it! So I took a deep breath and a review course, and I studied, and then two more times, I passed. I didn't know it at the time, but being, having my CPA certificate would make a big difference in my professional life. I don't tell you this story about, to brag about being a CPA, but to tell you that sometimes not giving up can pay unexpected dividends. Our church was founded by women who could not vote for president. The Reverend Eleanor Gordon and Reverend Mary Safford had accomplished much and earned their Florida retirement but they responded to the need for this church and still had energy to be active in the suffrage movement. Reverend Sam was contacted this week by the Florida coordinator for the National Women's Suffrage Marker Project in honor of this centennial year. This woman is proposing a marker honoring Mary Safford be erected at this very church. Our church has a rich history of agitators and leaders and men and women who refused to accept injustice and didn't give up. As we have learned and remembered in our history project, it hasn't always been smooth sailing. And even in the development of our beautiful campus, we had some bumps along the way, setbacks that might have deterred less committed groups, 
Not all of you were here. Some of you may not remember, or you may have just blocked this part out. Briefly, we talked and dreamed about our perfect campus, and then we found we had been seduced, really, into believing we could afford a project that we clearly could not. A few of us spent many long hours trying to find money under every rock. But eventually we had to face that we simply had gone off in the wrong direction with the wrong architects, and we had to come to a full stop. Talk about difficult conversations. The rather amazing and totally gratifying outcome of those difficult conversations was a reset, many, many reality checks, and a plan to deal with contingencies but take advantage of any and all saving opportunities or strokes of luck. And every time I drive onto this lovely campus, I'm thrilled with what you all made possible. I've recently been involved in the history project of the Orange County League of Women Voters and have been reading and studying this wonderful history of the League written by Ann Patton. See, Joan, I'm going to hold the book up as I was instructed to. Do not try to say no to Joan Irwin. Um, I cannot begin to do Anne's book justice in this short time, but yes, you can have your very own copy. We know change happens slowly, but we believe the arc of the universe bends towards justice with our help. The members of the Orange County League of Women Voters, founded just a few years after there could be women voters, knew fairly early that Florida's so-called Jim Crow Constitution, adopted in 1888, effectively blocked every effort to have fair elections. T.D. Allman, in his 2013 Florida history, was scathing. He said, Florida's notorious poll tax constitution was devised by the racist elite when they discovered that maintaining their power demanded radical racial suppression of votes by freed slaves. Those in power do not give it up easily. Just as it took decades to win the rights for women's vote, the Orange County League of Women Voters worked for 25 years, taking a leading role in the creation and ratification of Florida's new constitution in 1968. And then, you know what? The fight for fair districts, as required in said constitution, but vigorously opposed by the legislature, took another 46 years, $13 million, and 13 lawsuits before our voting districts were redrawn to allow the voters a fair chance of choosing their representatives as opposed to, as League President Deirdre McNabb had said, they were picking up. They were picking us. And we know that our fights for social and political justice are not over. So you start, you stumble, you fall, shake yourself off, take a breath, or many, Start again. The story of the fight for women's suffrage, the story of this church and maybe even my story of passing the CPA exam, are stories of ordinary people who saw an injustice or a need or a challenge. And little by little, step by step, year after year, gathered like-minded people or supportive or pushy friends and kept going. Eleanor Roosevelt said... You gain strength, courage, and confidence 
by every experience in which you really stop to look fear in the face. You are able to say to yourself, I have lived through this horror. I can take the next thing that comes along. You must do the thing you think you cannot do. We all must do the things we think we cannot do. Susan B. Anthony said, failure is impossible. I think for me, for us, for our country and our world, perhaps our slogan should be, don't give up. Thank you.